The following is a message by Dr. Julius Kim of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. This morning's devotion comes from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. As Dr. Baugh mentioned several weeks ago, uh, this morning's devotion is, is entitled Dr. Baugh Part 2. Uh, he, uh, as you well know, talked about several characters uh, in this story, primarily the servant girl. Uh, What I'll be doing is talking about some of the other characters uh, to round out that discussion. And so 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 16 is a scripture reading this morning. Listen carefully, for this is the word of God. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but... He had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, Six thousand shekels of gold and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him a message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet has told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. The Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to bow before you, 
before your presence and before your word so that we might learn more about you, your purposes, not only for Naaman, but even for us. So teach us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For me, some memories are very hard to forget. Like the first time I ever tasted chocolate ice cream. I'll never forget that. My first day of kindergarten. My first hole-in-one in golf. My first kiss. Which, of course, was after I said, I do. <laughs> My first child being born. Now, surprisingly, I actually remember the first time I read this story about Naaman. I was a young Christian zealously reading my way through the Old Testament because, after all, only serious Christians read the Old Testament. I actually remember exactly what I was thinking after having read this story. Unlike the joys that I experienced with these other firsts in my life, my reaction to reading the story of this foreign general receiving healing from this Israelite prophet was, so what? This story takes place in a distant time, in a distant place, And as far as I know, I don't have leprosy. I don't need a prophet. What does this story have to do with me? And so I just moved on, not really thinking about it. Grudgingly, grudgingly, unfortunately, reading the rest of 2 Kings so that I can move on to the ever-delightful genealogies of 1 and 2 Chronicles. Woo! (laughs) Now, friends, many of us, unfortunately, have read or continue to read and perhaps even preach Old Testament stories in this way. However, what I and many of you are beginning to discover is that God's purposes for this Old Testament story doesn't end with Naaman and Elisha and the servant girl, but continues to progress, to complete God's plans for even you and I through the person and work of Jesus. That's right. This story is about you and I and me. Well, to understand Old Testament narratives like this, one of the most effective ways to understand the purpose of the story is to analyze how the characters change as they progress through the plot. Along the way, we'll discover that the seemingly distant story about distant people has some profound things to say about God and his sovereign purposes, about Christ and his saving work, and yes, about you. So for this morning, I'd like to focus our attention on two characters. Since we've learned a little bit about the servant girl, let's talk a little bit about Naaman, this foreign general from Syria, and about Elisha, the prophet, the man of God who heals him. Other characters are present and important, but for our purposes this morning, we'll stick to these primary characters. What will we learn from them? Simply and yet profoundly. As Naaman receives healing from his leprosy, We learn that God is sovereign in taking his people from all corners of the earth, from all different sorts of social positions, graciously from bondage to blessing. So let's begin with Naaman, shall we? Who was Naaman? Well, verse 1 sets the scene for us. He was a commander in the army of Aram, for he was, as the text says, a great man. He wasn't just a great man. He was a man of great power. He was a valiant soldier. In fact, one of the most powerful soldiers in this army. Furthermore, he was highly regarded, the text says. Highly regarded for his military victory. And so, he held the position of esteem, of honor. Everyone respected him. 
In fact, he could even go to the king personally and make requests directly to him. No mediator was needed. This is how powerful and respected he was. But as you well know, the story takes a strange turn with the phrase at the end of verse 1, but he had leprosy. As you know, the Hebrew is much more abrupt here. It says in the Hebrew, a valiant soldier, leper. The narrative abruptly abruptly shifts gears to signal to us something very important. He was a leper. Though he was powerful, valiant, intimidating as a warrior, he was at the end of the day a leper. His power and his position could not hide the fact that he was cursed both physically and spiritually. You see, to the Hebrew reader, this condition of leprosy signified both ritual uncleanness, as we read in Leviticus 13 and 14, and the judgment of God. Thus, he had three strikes against him. Strike number one, he was ethnically outside the people of Israel. He was a foreigner, a foreign pagan. Strike two, he was ritually unclean. Strike three, he was spiritually under judgment, according to Numbers 12. And no matter how high he was in the society of his day, he was cursed and shamed because of this skin condition. Even though he had a great resume, when people looked at him and saw the leprosy, it didn't matter who he was, what he accomplished. He was simply an outcast. So what's the story trying to tell us by this? You see, to understand both the purpose of the human and divine author, you have to look past Naaman's exterior and see him as a man in need. The obvious need was the physical disease of leprosy. The less obvious problem that the story intends for us to see is both the social and spiritual exclusion that he undoubtedly experienced. The Bible tells us from passages like Leviticus 13 that the leper had to be isolated not only because of his physical contagion, but also because of his spiritual status. Wherever he went, he was to cry out to others, Unclean! Unclean! Get away from me! He had to wear black with a hood covering his face and live outside the city walls. Interestingly, whenever we read about the Lord Jesus healing a leper, Jesus always pronounced the, 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 the person cleansed not healed. Even Jesus recognized not just the physical disease, but the spiritual one. Thus, this, since leprosy cuts you off from others, it was considered a shameful disease. More than experiencing guilt, Naaman feels shame, rejection, being outside. Naaman needed to rid himself not only of this outward disease, but also his inward shame that isolated him from all, including God. Clearly, his problem was more than just skin deep. That was pretty good, huh? And it's at this point in the narrative, whether we like it or not, we have to see ourselves. Friends, Naaman's problems are the problems we all face. The Bible is clear. These problems are all pictures of the sin and shame that not only isolated Naaman from God, but separates us from God. Because of our sin, we are unclean, we are under judgment, and we are outside of God's blessings. So in light of Naaman's problems, both inside and out, what does he do about it? Let's see what the text says. 
based upon the servant girl's advice, he goes to the king and gets permission to visit the prophet. Now, what Naaman brings along with him is quite instructive. He actually brings five things to try to get, him, get himself cleansed or to heal himself of this disease of shame and rejection. Let's count them together. First, he brings his resources. In verse 5, we read that he brings an enormous amount of money with him, close to 700 pounds of silver, 120 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of expensive clothing. He brings his resources. What else does he bring? He brings his relationships, doesn't he? He expects the kings of Israel and Aram to open doors for him, verses 6 and 7. He relies upon these relationships that he's established to earn him the prophet's blessings. So he brings his resources. He brings his relationships. Now, there's a side note here before I go on. The king of Israel here, when he, when he gets this letter from the king of Aram, rightly states, Am I God? Verse 7, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Now, this is a significant statement for several reasons. First, this is actually one of the key themes of the Elijah-Elisha narratives. That there is only one true God, not only of the Israelites, but also of all the foreigners. But second, and perhaps more important, this phrase clues us into something that God wants to reveal to us. That he alone is the one who can kill and bring back to life. You see, in the narrative prior to this one in chapter 4, we read about this young son who was dead and then was raised to life. Who kills and brings back to life? God himself. In the narrative right after in chapter 6, we read about this iron, stone iron, dead weight that falls into the water. Signifying what? Death. And the man of God miraculously throws in a stick and the axe head comes back to life. So again... In chapter 5, we will read about a God who will kill and bring back to life. So, Naaman brings his resources, his relationships, but he also brings, thirdly, his reputation. You see, he comes to Elisha, he comes to his house, but he doesn't go to the front door and knock. What does he do? He waits, expecting Elisha to be impressed by his status. Verse 9, bringing all of his horses and chariots, he waits for Elisha to come out of his house to greet him personally. And not just meet his servant. Fourthly, he also brings, what else? What's another thing that he brings to try to heal himself? His race, doesn't he? When told by Elisha to bathe in the Jordan River in verse 10, he's upset. Why? Because he's thinking about his rivers back in his home country. Surely they would do a better job than this insignificant, inferior, muddy, dirty Jordan River. So he brings his resources, his relationships, his reputation, his race. And lastly, what does he bring? He brings his rewards, doesn't he? In verse 13, at the end of the day, he expected that he could do some great thing as his servants testify. To somehow earn or merit healing and restore his honor. So ultimately, as we look at the five things he brings to the table, what can we say? Ultimately, Naaman's hope and security is in Naaman. It's in himself, isn't it? He thinks that he can buy and earn honor, acceptance, respect, and healing by what he himself can bring. Obviously, what's the point? Are we any different? We may call it different things, but at the end of the day, we all look to ourselves for security and control for our own lives. Similarly, I'm always trying to find ways 
to rid myself of my shame and to somehow earn God's favor through my self-salvation strategies. And we're all wired this way, whether you want to admit it or not. Tell me what to fix, and I'll fix it. Tell me what not to do, and I won't do it. We think that our future depends on us and our resources, our relationships, our respect, our race, and our rewards. And this is the common theme in the Elijah and Elisha theme, Elijah narratives, that the seemingly powerful and exalted are at the end of the day just arrogant and ignorant. The kings, Naaman, their hope is in themselves. And here in this narrative, it's the imprisoned girl, the powerless, these servants of Naaman, the weak. They're the ones who place their hope and faith in God alone. The powerless and the humble have exhibited more faith than the powerful and the exalted. So that's who Naaman is, and that's what Naaman has done. What does Elisha do in response? Our second character. Naaman brings his resources. Elisha refuses to accept anything. Naaman brings his relationships. The king's references don't mean anything to Elisha. Naaman's reputation. Elisha doesn't even greet Naaman personally, but sends his servant to him. Naaman brings his race. Elisha tells him to wash in this muddy, insignificant river. Naaman's rewards. What does Elisha tell him to do? Just go to the river and simply get washed. Nothing more. So Elisha rejects everything. And so what does Naaman do? He goes away angry. Sounds similar to this rich young ruler, doesn't it? He goes off in a rage. And what Naaman fails to see is that Elisha's response was forcing Naaman to recognize that the Lord was not just one God among the many. Elisha's words and actions reveal God's purposes. He reveals that true healing from being unclean and under judgment comes from receiving grace through faith. It is grace through faith that takes us from bondage to blessing. Let me explain by taking a closer look at Elisha and what Naaman does. You see, Naaman is told to go plunge himself in the Jordan River seven times. Though at first he was not convinced by the seemingly insignificant act, he finally does go to the river, doesn't he? And after the seventh time of placing himself under the water, his flesh is instantly restored, no longer unclean, no longer under judgment, no longer on the outside. And so like the axe head in chapter 6, Naaman symbolically ex experiences death by going under the water. But when he comes up for the last time, he is not just cleansed from his leprosy. He is given new life. For Naaman, the beginning of true cleansing, inside and out, was the recognition that he was powerless and helpless to rid himself of the disease. He looked in faith to another Naaman finally realized that God's ways are different from his ways. He realized that things like his resources and reputation would never be enough. And so he states unequivocally in verse 15, look what he says, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. This is an astounding statement from a foreigner. But remember what Zechariah 13.1 promised? On that day... A fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Israel, of, of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from what? From sin and impurity. You see, the Bible rings with this truth. We cannot cleanse ourselves. 
We must be cleansed by another. We cannot make ourselves innocent. We must be forgiven and declared right. We can never do enough or give enough to get ourselves inside God's favor. In fact, we can't do anything at all. The story of the Bible is that God in his great love and mercy took the initiative to restore us, not by our own efforts, but by grace alone. For the God of Naaman is the God of our lives. Knowing fully well that we cannot get rid of our own sin and shame, what does God do? God takes the sin and shame that leprosy represents and placed it upon his own perfect son, casting his own son on the outside to a hill called Golgotha. And friends, there on Calvary, Jesus endured all the scorn and shame of not only Naaman's leprosy, but the disease of our sin. Upon the cross, Jesus took upon our leprosy, sin, and shame so that we could be taken from bondage to blessing. Jesus became unclean. Jesus was placed under judgment, and he was placed outside his Father's favor. Why? So that through his perfect life and sacrificial death, we would be, by faith, cleansed, accepted, and loved by our Heavenly Father. You see, unlike the Israelite king who cannot kill and bring back to life, God did kill and bring back to life his own beloved son so that we might have life. Remember what the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians? You have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. Friends, this is our story. In the New Testament Gospels, Jesus' healing of the lepers was a preview of what he would do for us. Matthew 8 tells us that when Jesus healed even the lepers, he was doing so to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. For he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Where? On the cross. Nothing you bring can restore you from your shame your resources, your relationships, your rewards. Nothing you bring can buy you the honor of being lifted up, lifted up to the heavenly places where Christ himself sits. Only faith in the one who took your place on the cross will take you from bondage to blessing. Faith in Jesus who anticipated his death and resurrection when he himself was baptized in the same muddy, insignificant river faith in the one who now heals us, cleanses us, restores us, honors us, accepts us, and loves us. You see, friends, this is our story. And that's why, as recipients of his wonderful grace, we are now motivated in our witness out of profound gratitude. You see, formerly bound by our sin and shame, we have been released to become prisoners now of gratitude and pointers of grace. Grateful and humble servants for what the Savior has done for us, pointing others to the Savior who can wash away all of our sins. And in that way, you're like that servant girl. Humble, powerless, nameless, 
She has become a prisoner of grace, pointing others to grace. Friends, this is our story, and this is our song, that as we bear witness to Christ, we are but a pointer to the sovereign, gracious, saving God who takes us from bondage to blessing. I'll never read the story the same way again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the marvelous truth that this story teaches us. The marvelous truth of your profound and unspeakable grace to us in Jesus who has taken us from bondage to blessing. Help us, Lord, to rest and rely upon you as we face difficulties in our own life to remember what you have done for us. You have taken us from death to life out of darkness to light, so that we might proclaim your excellencies, so that we, prisoners of gratitude, might become pointers to grace. Thank you, Lord. Empower us by your spirit to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2007 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.